Good morning. Well, last week we started a series looking at Scripture about what it takes to grow into spiritual maturity. Rob showed us first that spiritual maturity does have similarities and some differences with other areas of life. Like the Apostle Paul did, uh, Rob used some athletics and games as a metaphor for spirituality. Basically, you have uh, seasons where you have great gains and you are basically unstoppable and you're just going to go up from here. You also have seasons where you peak for a time, you kind of plateau, and you wonder if you'll ever get back to where you were. You also have seasons where you decline and wonder if you'll ever get back to where you were. The spiritual life, though, is a little bit different. It doesn't have peaks. You don't ever finish spiritually. At some point, as a runner or a basketball player, you'll be in the best physical condition of your life. You'll be in the best mental state you'll ever be in. You'll be the fastest or strongest you'll ever be. In other words, you'll peak. But your spirit isn't like that. It's not until we reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven and new earth that we are made perfect, free from the defects and even the desires of sin. Our spirits will be made perfect just like God has always intended them to be. But until that time, we may decline, we may plateau, we may grow, but we never reach our peak, ever-increasing glory. There's no reason to think that we have arrived. Now, one of the temptations of a healthy desire to grow spiritually is to reduce it to one of two things. Either a laundry list of practices that I have to get these things right, or just a series of facts to hold on to, intellectual assent to a few different things. The issue with making the spiritual life nothing more than just behaviors is that we will fall short in just behaviors. We will feel like failures when we fail in our laundry list of things to do. Now, of course, we need right behaviors because what are wrong behaviors? We call those things sin, right? So we don't want to just steep around in wrong behaviors. So right behaviors are important. They're good. They're necessary. Things like forgiving others, praying for people, generosity, a host of others. But we also need to know certain things about our faith. We need the facts, you might say, about Christianity. If we have wrong beliefs and we know it, it's kind of like wrong behaviors, right? Things that are wrong are sin. We need to have right beliefs, right behaviors. So, but just because people might disagree on something doesn't mean that you can't know anything. The Apostle Paul says, let every man be convinced in his own mind. So whatever a disagreement might be, as believers, we're required to plant ourselves into something and to stay rooted. And the Bible is full of commands to grow in learning. Be renewed by the transforming of your minds. There is a whole collection of books in the Old Testament called wisdom literature, and it never addresses Israel, it never addresses the church, it never addresses God's people. It's only concerned with growing in wisdom, growing in learning. We need uninterrupted time for learning, whether it's the 30 seconds between diaper changes or a weekly Bible study here at the church. So what I want to do today is to bring a comprehensive view of biblical spirituality, just because it's not just combining right practices, it's not just combining right beliefs, it's not just bringing those things together. 
Because sometimes that's the elephant in the room, right? Spirituality can kind of seem so nebulous if we just talk about it with, you know, the rest of the world. It's just things that make you feel good. What is a spiritual life? Is it just combining good things, good beliefs, good behaviors? Uh, It's so nebulous and vague if we don't define it from Scripture. Because Scripture is quite clear on what spiritual life is and what a spiritual life would be. It tells us in a few different places, but we're going to camp out today in this passage from 2 Corinthians and see what the Apostle Paul thinks a spiritual life is. We'll get right to the point and say what a spiritual life is concerned about. Here it is, verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect or mirror the Lord's glory, and here it is, are being transformed into his image, with ever-increasing glory, no plateaus, no peaks, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what's the point of a spiritual life? To be transformed to the image of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this whole passage here hinges on the word image. It's a very important biblical word. If we go back to the beginning, the first chapter of the first book, we read that God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. This is what separates us from every other part of creation. God forming man in his own image raises us above every other living thing. This is why mankind is so much more than just an animal. We're so much more than just our appetites. We're so much more than just our desires, our sexuality, our identity. We're even more than just the sum of our parts. So right here in the very beginning, the first humans were given something that made them distinct from everything else, and that was the image of God. Right after we learn that God made man in his image, without telling us much what that means, he then tells us what the image of God is made up of. The next verse, Genesis 1.28, reads, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, and every living thing that moves on the ground. Throughout the history of the church, certain verses are recognized as being very, very important, and they're given kind of nicknames to help recall them to memory, help memorize them. This is one of those verses. It's often called the cultural mandate, or the dominion mandate. Basically, in this one verse, God commands men and women to form culture and to rule over every part of the earth, inside and up, inside and out, down and up, right and left, wet and dry, all of it is ours to subdue. The National Ocean Service has said that 95% or more of the Earth's oceans have yet to be seen by human eyes. So we still have some work to do. If you want to kill some time, Google unexplored areas of the Earth and say farewell to an afternoon. But this is an often forgotten truth. When people begin to complain that man is the problem with the world, they're not working from a biblical worldview. Man is not the problem. Man is designed to fix the problem that God has cursed the earth. God made man to use the earth for all that it has to offer to do so responsibly, but to subdue and rule and have domain over the whole world, the cultural mandate, the, the dominion mandate, comes in Genesis 1. By Genesis 3, man has sinned, and because of that, God has cursed the earth. Now, man's time with God is tainted. With others, it's tainted. 
with the whole universe is now tainted. Before sin, mankind lived in perfect harmony with his creator, his peers, and the whole world. The image of God was this, mankind serving as God's representatives in the world. So watch the image of God, what are we renewing? Mankind serving as God's representatives in the world. But because we sin, we were now fighting against all these relationships. We reject God's lordship and try to be our own gods. We use others instead of loving them. We abuse the earth instead of steward it. But here's one thing. If you leave today knowing nothing else, don't forget this. The image of God has not been removed from anyone. The effects of sin have not totally removed or done away with God's purposes. Sin doesn't have that kind of power. God is sovereign and he has power over sin and death, which he proved in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So though it's cloudy, you still reflect God's purposes for this world. A biblical spirituality is the renewing of the image of God in a believer. So if the point of growing in biblical spirituality and spiritual maturity is to be renewed in the image of God, we first need to make certain that we know just what that is. So first, to be made in the image of God is to live a life directed toward God. Basic enough, right? We owe our very existence to God, and by that fact, we must hold this as our most important relationship. Other things can suffer if we get the relationship with God right. We love God above all. We trust him above all. We obey him above all. The classic example is a fish living in water. If a fish stays where he's made to be, he is 100% free. It is not cruel to ask a fish to stay in water. If the fish feels as though he is free to go wherever he wishes, the experience won't be a very long or very happy one. If a fish works with this understanding, this idea of what freedom is, then he, that he can live outside of any authority, outside of any boundary, he'll die. It's the same thing in the relationship of God and man. We are not free to live outside a relationship with God. If we do, we will die. There will be spiritual and physical death that comes from that. As beings that have an intellect and a will, we are also naturally responsible to our Creator for how we live our lives. God intends that all, whatever we do, with all the powers He's given us, with all the intellect, all the whatever He's gifted you with, we use that for His glory so that all of our powers and, and gifts are in service to Him. Second, to be made in the image of God is also to live a life directed toward others. We're not made to live our entire lives in isolation. Now, while the first human relationship mentioned in Scripture is marriage, the Bible never teaches that you have to have a marriage to be fully human. The Lord never married. Paul never married. There will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, Paul seems to say that if you're not married, don't worry about it. You're better off. The point in Genesis 2 and of God sending Eve to Adam is that the image of God is more clearly portrayed in relationship than isolation. God is three persons with one essence, and in that same way, people are the image of God more than just one person in isolation is. This is also taught in the command to love your neighbor and treat him like you would want to be treated. Where you are weak, someone else is strong. 
where you are strong, someone who's weak needs you. Men and women need the social aspect of life to more fully reflect the image of God. Third, the image of God is to rule over nature. As creator, God has complete, unquestioned dominion over everything. If he makes it, it's his. But he shares that dominion with mankind. In telling us to fill the earth and subdue it, God commands us to act act as rulers and to do with the earth what we will. Of course responsibly, of course in obedience, but what we will. Subdue means to explore the earth's resources, cultivate its land, feed its people, mine all of its treasures. What's incredible is since the Industrial Revolution, we've all but eradicated famine in most parts of the world. But it also includes the intangible parts of the earth. It's a call to develop all the potential of the earth, agriculture, science, technology, the arts. And we must therefore form a God-glorifying culture. So Christians should not just retreat from an increasingly secular culture. Christians should be developing the best, healthiest, most God-glorifying kind of culture. We, We stand below God, but we stand above nature. As stewards of this wonderful gift of the earth, we reflect the image of God. But because the image of God has been a bit scuffed up and might be a bit cloudy because of sin, it needs to be renewed in ever-increasing glory. We've used our God-given powers as those who are supposed to live in relationship with God, others, and the whole world for our own selfish purposes when we're supposed to use them to glorify God, to love others, and care for creation. First, the renewal of the image of God in us means that through Jesus Christ, we are able to once again live in relationship with God. We can worship him, pray to him, thank him, do all kinds of love for God. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus emphasizes this when he reminds us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Renewing God's image in us means that we use the incredible power and responsibility that God gave only mankind to glorify him instead of ourselves. So what are some tangible ways that we can do this? The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds when we show up and practice these things, things that God tells us to do. Think of the characteristics of God and imitate those. For example, God is generous. Am I? We don't take up an offering every week because God needs the money. He's late on some bills. We take up an offering because we serve and worship a generous God. He was given to us more than we could ever give back to him. God who has given us more than we could ever give back to him has told us that you can be like me when you act generously. Those who the Spirit is renewing the image of God and will become more generous at work, at home, in their community. Because God did not save us with dollar bills, right? He didn't buy us. He bought us with his son, but not with money. His generosity, therefore, extends to knowledge, so share your knowledge. Teach. It extends to hospitality. Open your home up. Make it comfortable for people to be there. With your time, be available. Generosity extends far beyond just your finances. God is merciful. Am I? Are you? When people hurt you, what do you do? In the the moment, 
Do you get angry and want to do something terrible, but do you recognize it and take control of it? Take every thought captive. That's more becoming more like the characteristics that God shares with us. And there are many more. But second, renewing the image of God means being able to live at peace with those around you and living in Christian community. Loving your neighbor as yourself, forgiving when you've been sinned against, being concerned for your neighbor's welfare. It extends to being informed on social issues. It means loving your enemies, which according to Matthew 5, Jesus says is a way we especially show the world the image of God. Because God loved them first. We don't love people because they're lovable. We love them because God loved them first. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, Do not waste time bothering whether or not you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. What sin did to to make us love ourselves more than other people needs to be renewed and it needs to be changed to be more like God. So we use them for our own gains, but in a similar way that renewing God's image in us allows us to use our power to serve him, it also allows us to use our power to serve our fellow man. Sharing in their joys, sharing in their sorrows, even if you would, would rather not at the moment, using your words to build someone up, even if their behavior doesn't warrant such kindness, refusing to look down on someone because of their background. As God so loved the world, we must love the world. Third, renewing the image of God means that we actually rule over creation instead of doing anything else with it. We are free to subdue the earth and not be afraid of it. We are free to be responsible, obedient, and unselfish with creation. Whatever we can get from the earth for the benefit of your fellow man is permissible. That is the ultimate metric for the believer. Yes, the earth sometimes does push back. That's because the earth is cursed. And who cursed it? Our Father in Heaven and God did because of our sin. But the great hope of the Christian faith is that this all passes away and is replaced one day with what is perfect, eternal, imperishable, and free from the effects of sin. Everything is on God's sovereign timetable, and no amount of abuse will shorten what God's plan has in store, and no amount of care will extend what God's plan has in store. In terms of culture, Christians should be the best philosophers, scientists, researchers, writers, teachers, civil servants, soldiers, parents, and everything in between. Every job and profession contributes in some way to human flourishing. I don't know if you've ever raised an eight-month-old baby, but a bag of diapers weighs about 500 pounds. So I am really glad there's someone who takes time out of their week to come pick up my trash. There is no job that is beneath anyone made in God's image, and there is no job that is above anyone. We should be ambitious, but there's nothing below us. There's nothing below us. In terms of culture, we should be the best at whatever we do. Every parent raising godly children is also contributing to human flourishing. This doesn't mean that we don't engage the world evangelistically, but we also do whatever it is you've been called to do with a high level of excellence 
And in so doing, the world sees the image of God reflected in you. We need to be creating a Christian worldview and engaging culture through the lens of Scripture. A maturing spirit is in the process of renewal in the image of God. Sin has marred the image of God in you, but it is still present. Sin cannot remove the image of God. Apart from Christ, the one whose image we should be mirroring, we will, we will only use our powers for loving ourselves, harming others, hurting creation. With Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are free to love God, serve people, and reach the world. We're coming to communion where we judge ourselves to see where we are in our spiritual maturity. I'll ask the deacons to come forward. And if you're a believer, we serve an open communion, so you are welcome to receive it with us. The Apostle Paul tells us that we must examine ourselves before coming to a time of communion. We, so we carve out time in worship to examine ourselves so that we can hear the Holy Spirit correcting us and guiding us to love God more deeply, to serve people more happily and more fully, and to rule over the earth in wisdom. <laughs>